So turn with me this morning, please, to Mark 10, 13 through 16. That's where we will behold and consider the wonders of God and his word this morning. Mark 10, 13 through 16. So there once was a, a very important man, perhaps a, the likes of a CEO or a political leader, military leader, something like this. And, and he was a man whose role and position demanded a certain type of respect and, a, and, and attention. This man was, was holding court with, with many of those under his authority And everyone's attention was trained on him, and and no one dare interrupt. In fact, if you you approach this man, the perception was, because of his his greatness, the perception was that you better have your ducks in a row. You better bring something to offer. That's what was perceived just by his, the gravity of this man. So he's in the middle of addressing those under his authority, and in the middle of his address, in the middle of his speech, another person walks right into the room without even knocking on the door. Now, the, the countenance of this person was anything but professional. They were practically stumbling over themselves, not dressed to the nines or anything, wearing a t-shirt, might have had some, a, a food stain on the shirt, perhaps even a little on the face, hair disheveled. And he just comes right into the room, unashamed, boldly even, and runs right up to this powerful, important man. And what everybody in the room is holding their breath, thinking, what is about to happen? But without missing a beat, the all-important man bends down and picks up the little intruder wraps him in a hug, and just keeps right on talking. Well, I'm sure you've put it together by now. The disheveled hair, shirt untucked, completely unkempt, food on the face, was this man's five-year-old son, whom the man loved. The boy thinks nothing of running up to his dad, even in the midst of such pomp. And the boy has every right and privilege to, because he is the man's son. And today we'll see that Jesus tells us that children reveal something of the kingdom of God to us and to those who receive it. And children themselves seem to hold a special place in the kingdom of God because Jesus does something unique here in this passage, in this narrative that we'll point out. But ultimately what we find in this narrative in Mark 10, 13 through 16 is that that children of the kingdom of God are children of God himself. Indeed, this scene we witness is is actually a wonderful illustration of the gospel as it unfolds in in Mark's narrative. And and we've reached a turning turning point in Mark, so it's all the more fitting because Mark is driving even harder and harder towards the cross. We've seen in Mark recently uh, some key passages, Mark 8, 27 through 32, where Peter confesses, Christ, Jesus as the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah we've all been waiting for. And and what we found in that passage is that if you confess the Christ, then you inevitably confess the Christ's mission, which is to suffer and die on the cross. Jesus made that abundantly clear to Peter. 
And so the message of Mark, we've noted week after week, is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he surprisingly serves and suffers in order to save his people. But, but again, there's another part of this, because you cannot separate your confession of Jesus as the Christ from who you are. To confess Jesus as the Christ is, is to confess something about yourself. If you are to be his disciple. Mark 8, 34, another key passage says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So Jesus has come proclaiming the kingdom, and now more and more, he's more and more making clear what it looks like for citizens of that kingdom. They must be those who deny themselves, put their whole trust and treasure in Christ, the Messiah. And here in our passage today, we have perhaps the most explicit description of what the people of the kingdom look like. They look like children. That's what the king tells us. So let's see how it is that children reveal to us the stuff that citizens of, of, of the kingdom of God are made of. Look with me at Mark ten thirteen through 16. Follow along as I read. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. <clears throat> Pardon me. So we'll consider this passage in, in three parts. First, we'll see in verse 13, resistance to children of the kingdom. Resistance to children of the kingdom. Then in verses 14 and 15, we will see rescue and welcome for children of the kingdom. Rescue and welcome for children of the kingdom. Then in verse 16, we will see reward for children of the kingdom. So resistance to children of the kingdom, rescue and welcome for children of the kingdom, and then reward for children of the kingdom. And the main idea when you read this, this passage is simply this. Jesus welcomes and makes a way for children. That's what Mark is telling us here. That simple, right? It's right on, right on, on, on a plain reading of the text. But the message then that comes out of this for us is, is that Jesus welcomes, makes a way for, and blesses you who are God's child. So first look with me at, at part one, verse 13, resistance to children of the kingdom. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. So here in one, in, in one verse, we have a situation with a response. The situation is, is this. People are bringing their children, presumably their, their own, to Jesus so that he can touch them. That's the purpose. They're, they're bringing them so that he can touch them. Now, the, the word for children here is broad, and uh, it could be children of all ages. We've seen Mark use this for someone as old as 12. But, but the parallel account in Luke tells us specifically that these are, these are babies. He uses a word specifically for babies and infants, which would make sense if they're being carried. But there's also the sense that these children come to him. So, so we're, we're thinking, as Cody pointed out, so we're thinking 
you know, these are perhaps babies, small children, around toddler age. That's kind of the, the age range we're thinking of here. This is, so this is also a first for Mark, though. We've seen people in Mark bring, bring their sick and bring their lame and bring their demon-possessed, but this is the first time that we've seen people bring their children. Not for healing, not for the purpose of having, having a demon cast out, but bringing their children to receive what this passage will reveal as a blessing, to receive a, a touch. Now, it's pretty common to, at this time to, to bring children to someone in this context uh, who is perceived to be a holy person, a prophet, so that they can touch them. But what we see here is, is that sometimes what we think we want, Jesus, God wants to give us so much more. They want a touch, and, and Jesus wants to give them the kingdom. And that's what he wants to do for us. We have to we have small expectations sometimes for what God actually wants to do, right? So nonetheless, we can learn something from this scene. Why would these people be bringing their children to Jesus for a touch of blessing? Because they're thinking about their future generations. And we can actually very quickly apply this, can't we? We did it just this morning we held baby dedications as, as, as a way to pray for and bless our children, to commit them to, to, to commit to be faithful in raising them and pointing them to God. We pray for them that they would escape their enemy, sin, and Satan, that they would be children of the kingdom. I mean, we do this in other ways, don't we? We plan extensively. For our children, we might set aside money for education. We we seek to discipline them, just to put in some earthly wisdom in them, to train them up to be responsible citizens, educate them. But the greatest deposit we can place in the life of our children is the story of God. So we're very much like these people. We bring our children to Jesus. We bring our children to Jesus because we spread the gospel of the kingdom, not only in our present time and place, but also down through future generations. And we do that for two reasons. For God's glory and the salvation of future generations. So, Those two reasons are bound together. So we tell our children the story of who God is, that he requires our praise simply for who he is. That there are heavenly creatures beyond our imagining right now flying around his throne in heaven, covering their faces with wings because he is so bright and glorious and they're praising him simply for who he is. Revelation 4.8 saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we all, so we tell our children who God is. We also tell our children what God has done. We tell them the story of the creator, the triune God who made heaven and earth. We tell them that when they behold the beauty of a, of a stormy Carolina coast, or the misty Blue Ridge Mountains in fall, or the birds, or the animals, that when they see these things, they're, they're pointing to the glory of the, the one who created them. They're testifying to their creator. 
Then we tell them that heaven right now praises God for his work of creation. Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So we bring our children to Jesus to tell them of who God is and to tell them of, who, of what he's done in his work in creation. We also bring our children to Jesus to tell them of God's work in redemption. The same God who is, is, is so glorious and created all things desired to rescue us. Created Adam and Eve to be his son and daughter. We were meant to be God's children but fell into willful rebellion with Satan and sin. So we tell them the story of God the Redeemer, the Lamb, the offspring of, of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, the offspring of Jacob who would bless the families, as we read this morning. And we tell them that God has redeemed us through Jesus, who has ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation, and that all of heaven is praising him right now for his work in redemption and revelation Four again, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we bring our children to Jesus for God's glory and their salvation. And the cycle repeats then they bring their children, we pray, to, to Jesus to tell of God and what he has done, to tell them the story of God. So we are like these people in the story. We bring our children to Jesus. But there will be resistance. Even from, well, in this case, in Mark, you would expect this at, by the, at this point, that coming from the disciples but it can often be from unexpected places. So we see the response of the disciples in verse 13. And the disciples rebuked them. So the disciples respond to this by rebuking the people and keeping the children from Jesus. How thick are these guys, right? So we, we've just seen a few chapters before. What did Jesus tell them? If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus has just made clear to them that part of the work of the kingdom is welcoming the lowly. And the weak. Yet here they are, perhaps thinking Jesus is the Christ. We've just seen him transfigured. This is the biggest event in the history of, the, of creation of the world, which is true. And so we need to keep these people from him because he has bigger things to take care of. By their arrogance, they are actually actively working against kingdom work here. And Jesus makes clear that this lowly act, again, he will make clear, makes up the warp and the woof, the very fabric of the kingdom of God. 
The Son of God came down from heaven in order to bless children. That is why he came down. And they're actually proving to be agents of resistance. What, what are common agents of resistance in this, uh, in this, our coming to Jesus? Well, I can think of two, at least. Our own sin and, and Satan. The originals, right? Our sin can prevent us from knowledge of the truth of the kingdom of God. And our sin also blinds us so that we stumble into Satan's traps. That's what Timothy, uh, that's what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 25 through 26. He says, God grants repentance to his people from sin. Leading this repentance leads to a knowledge of the truth. That they may then come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. After being captured by him to do his will. Our own sin and sinful flesh and Satan actively resist our coming to God. We just repeat the cycle of Adam. So what does the king do, the king of God's kingdom, do in the face of such resistance that would keep his children from coming to him? Well, look with me at part 2, verses 14 through 15. Rescue and welcome of the children of the kingdom. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So the remainder of of this passage, verses 14 through 16, gives gives us an action as a whole, And a result of that action, or the purpose of that action. So action and result, or action and purpose. And and here in verses 14 through 15, we see the action. And it's made up of some individual actions. So the action, three separate but intertwined actions of Jesus. What are they? Jesus sees. Jesus becomes angry, or indignant here. And Jesus speaks. So notice, first, Jesus sees. Jesus' seeing gives rise to his anger in speaking. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Or as Jesus saw it, he became angry and said. So, so Jesus' speaking and seeing are accompanied first by his seeing. What is it that Jesus sees? Well, he saw it. Jesus sees observes and witnesses the injustice of the disciples keeping back the children from himself. This is what moves him to anger. So, second part of the action, Jesus is angry. Mark attributes more emotion to Jesus than than any other gospel writers. We've seen Jesus move to pity. We've, We've seen Jesus angry before, We've seen Jesus overwhelmed with this visceral compassion. But, but this is actually the only time this word that we translate indignant is ever attributed to Jesus. And it's, I think it's a good translation because it's, it's like next level anger. And we can all kind of relate to this, right? There's kind of a little bit, you get mad sometimes, but then there's some things that just, you feel yourself go to that next level. That seems to be what what this is describing if if tradition is right and peter is the one 
who, who was the source for our author, Mark, I can just imagine Peter describing this scene to Mark, saying, Mark's sitting down for the interview, he's like, oh, yeah, there was this one time we began to hold people back as they were trying to come to Jesus with their, their kids, and we, you know, we thought we were, yeah, make way, we're kind of his personal entourage. And Jesus got so mad. I had never seen him get this mad before. Jesus sees it, and he becomes indignant. So Jesus' level of anger here reveals something to us. We know Jesus never sinned, right? So what, what, what is his, his, his wrath, this rise of Jesus' wrath revealing to us? Does it not reveal his love and compassion for these weak children? And I would even say his love and compassion for his disciples who are acting out of character. So, so we, we often think of, of Jesus' love and compassion, right? First, moving to us in order to save us. But, but here we need, we need two pictures of Jesus in our mind. We need to see the Jesus who acts on behalf of his people because he's, he loves them and is compassionate towards them. And we also need to see the Jesus with eyes of fire looking at our enemies. Sin and Satan, the Son of God, came to destroy the works of the devil. If you find yourself hurting from and angered at the sin of the world, sin in your own life, and the snares of Satan that would keep you from Jesus, your anger pales in comparison to the champion of our faith whose compassion and anger would move him to throw his body in the line of fire in order that you could come to him. You are the object of his love, and that means sin and Satan and his malicious works are the objects of his fiery wrath. Jesus' anger means your salvation. And in this case, the disciples in their stubbornness prove to be enemies of those trying to come into the kingdom. And so the disciples could learn something from the nature of these children here, which Jesus reveals by what he says. So Jesus, is, Jesus sees, he's moved to anger, and now he speaks. He's not passive. He speaks into the situation. And Jesus sees the injustice and he speaks two commands followed by a reason for those commands. The first uh, command is this, let the children come to me. Second command is do not hinder, hinder them. See that in verse 14. So, so we see a command of welcome, one that makes welcome and a command that makes a way. A command that welcomes and a command that makes a way. So, so the disciples reject the children because of their lowly stature, thinking that their great Messiah is too busy with kingdom work to be bothered. But their lowly, weak stature is precisely the reason they are welcomed. Welcoming them is the essence of kingdom work. Not because they have something to offer, because they come to him in trust. And second, he commands, do not hinder them. So Jesus not only gives a word of welcome, but now he makes a way, which is what the gospel does. The gospel welcomes us to God, and it makes a way for us to come to God. 
And the reason, verses 14 through 15, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So the reason the Messiah has the time to welcome these children is because the kingdom of God actually belongs to those who are like these children in some way, shape, or form. What way is that? Well, we've kind of touched on it a little bit. We're not necessarily talking about innocence and purity, right? Not sinlessness. Anybody who's been around a toddler for a couple of minutes realizes that's the case, or that's not the case. What is it that, that marks children in, the, in these infants, which, which makes them such a revealing picture? It's their, their weakness, their lowliness, trust, dependence, as Cody said, bringing nothing to the table to offer. You think of a child coming to a parent, just as we talked about in the illustration. They, they come to you, with nothing to offer, well, and that's not always the case. They think they're bringing something. To, Evie brought me a pine cone the other day, right? But I didn't wrap her up and hug her because she brought me a pine cone. I wrapped her up and hugged her because she's my daughter, right? So Jesus is pointing to this as an example, not as, not a, as an example of a weak faith when we think of a childlike faith. Jesus is actually saying that this is kingdom faith. There's a picture here that's robust, rich faith. And children live with a particular freedom, don't they? A freedom from worry, anxiety. And and they live and act in accordance with the relationship with their parent. Now, they trust their parent to provide and care. And so we can see that sometimes in children and we envy it. They come powerless, yet fully trusting, depending upon, and loving on a parent. Now, perhaps you can't relate to this. Because your childhood wasn't marked by such trust, but by fear. Well, Jesus says that if you are in the kingdom, the reality that he's pointing to, it might not have been your earthly reality, but it is your heavenly reality. So this childlike faith is a picture of the Christian life. It's not a faith that says just be passive, let go, and let God take care of everything. It's a, it's a faith that responds to who God is and who God says you are in him and lives in light of that relationship. It treasures God and takes hold of him and the promise of his love and the promise of grace and freedom he provides and runs in accordance with those realities. Changed, trusting in nothing else. So the irony here is that the disciples are seeking to be great men of the kingdom. Remember, they were arguing about greatness just a few verses. Who's the greatest? And Jesus continues to tell them, you have something to learn from these children because they're revealing to you, they're revealing to you the stuff of the kingdom. In fact, if they don't turn and become like these children, they will not receive the kingdom, is what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not even enter it. So, 
This is an important point. God speaking that we see the formula, truly I say to you. That's the, that's the formula for saying, listen up. God is speaking this now. So Jesus gave the reason for why he was welcoming the children. And now he's given a teaching out of that. The kingdom of God must be received like a child or else you will not enter it. We, so it's Christians are like a child then who, who bravely walks into a dark hallway of the world because their dad is with them. We walk and we engage in the fight and we strain to enter the kingdom because we rest and hope and trust not in our own strength, but in the strength of God. Not in our own hate for sin or resolve to resist Satan and his schemes, but in God's righteous anger and resolve. So the child of the kingdom says, God's power is perfected in my weakness. When I work, it is God working through me. So we get these images of uh, we're supposed to be children, but then we think of passages where we see, but we're putting on the full armor of God to engage in spiritual warfare. And how do those two jive? Well, it's this, because God gives us the armor. It is God who is fighting through us. Perhaps the, the best way to understand this childlike faith is to look at the photo negative in the following passage in Mark ten seventeen through 31. We see, uh, and Mark, I think, intends for us to see these together. We see the rich man come to Jesus saying, how can I inherit eternal life? Falling before him. And, and Jesus loves the man is what the passage tells us. He sees him and he loves him. And, and Jesus says, you know the commandments. And, and the man says, yes, I've, I've kept these. And Jesus points out then the one thing in his heart that this guy is placing his security. And he says, then we'll take all your possessions, sell and give to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the man went away sad because he was a man of great wealth. Now, it could have been that this man just loved wealth, or it could have been that he found even more of his security in his identity and what he could provide for himself. I've kept all of those commandments. I've done it. What else do I need to do? The man put his hope and his treasure in the things he could do and secure for himself rather than putting his hope and trust in Christ. He treasured the things of earth rather than, as Jesus told him, to secure up treasure in heaven. So children of the kingdom trust in Jesus, follow him and depend on him and live according to that confession of the faith. Those who are not children of the kingdom will depend on other things and wrap their identity up in other things and live life accordingly. We must treasure and trust the king alone. This is how we receive the blessing of the kingdom. This entire scene pictures the gospel, doesn't it? It's no accident that Jesus is pointing to children in order to give us a picture of what those in the kingdom of God look like. Because as we've said over and over from the beginning, 
God created us to be his children. And in his work through the Son has made us his children once again. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. In, in love, God predestined us for adoption as sons to himself through Jesus Christ. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the word tells us that we, we are led by the spirits. We who are led by the spirit are sons of God. We are not slaves who fear coming to God, but sons who cry, Abba, Father. We are children of God and therefore heirs of Christ. God has set us, set apart Adam and Eve from all creation to be his children. And in Christ, he has done that once again. I'm reminded of a psalm. Psalm 87, on the holy mountain stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Cities made up of people. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab, Babylon. Behold, Philistia, and Tyre, and Cush. This one was born there they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her for the most high himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say all my springs are in you. These are nations that were not of God's people in the Old Testament. And, and what God is saying, I have made them my children. And look around, there are nations in here. And what God is saying is that you, though you were a rebel against me, through Christ, who in his anger at sin and the enemy, then took on the full brunt of God's wrath at sin and Satan so that you and I could be made children. Rebels, now children of God, adopted. And it says, and our word says, we were born in the city of God. That's a complete change. For the Son of Man came to seek and serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what makes you God's child. And as children of the kingdom, we receive the blessing of our king. So look at the third and final point, verse 16. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So here Jesus does something that we only see him do in one other place, and that's at his ascension. He, he blesses the disciples as he leaves. But here, this is the only time we see Jesus laying hands on and blessing. And, and what does Jesus do? It says he takes up in his arms the, children's, the, baby, the children and the babies. Jesus, this is the same word we pointed out when Jesus picked up the child earlier, a few chapters earlier. Jesus embraces and hugs, that's the picture here, and blesses these children. The result of receiving the kingdom of God is that one receives the blessing of the king. 
in perfect fellowship with him, in relationship with him, wrapped in his loving embrace. And it's worth noting, again, that the only people Jesus has ever, we ever see Jesus do this to, are these children. This perhaps offers us some insight into the unique place of children with regard to the kingdom of God. And, and I say this uh, sensitively and humbly because oftentimes we, we can struggle to know we, we're racked with this idea we know of our total depravity. What does that mean? What does that mean for, we think, the infants, unborn, those who uh, mentally perhaps have a severe handicap. I think this passage, along with some others, offers great hope. Hope that there is salvation for those. And perhaps uh, I think the, the best way I've, I've seen it written out is the elder affirmation of faith of Bethlehem Baptist Church. We read this, the Spirit binds his saving work to the gospel of Christ because his aim is to glorify the Christ of the gospel. Therefore, we do not believe that there is salvation through any other means than through receiving the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, except that infants and people with severe intellectual disabilities and minds, physically incapable of comprehending the gospel, may be saved. We think of Romans 1, 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse, seen and comprehended. But that begs the question, are there those without excuse who have not seen and comprehended? I think a passage like this gives us hope that those who fit that description, infants, and those with physical, physically in, incapable of comprehending the gospel may be saved. There's hope there. But again, we not only get insight into this, but we see that we were meant to be God's children. And here we see God's son, the promised offspring, bringing blessing to us and making us children once again. We see in Christ's love for these children, his acting on their behalf, their complete trust and dependence to come to him, be scooped up in his arms. This is a picture of redemption that God has been writing, making rebels his children. And we can't help but apply this. So first, first application from this gospel passage would be to come boldly. Come boldly. There is no guilt, no shame for you in his presence. The author of Hebrews tells us that we have access to the very throne room of God through the flesh of Christ. Jesus stands ready 
to usher us in with open arms. He says, come and draw near. There is nothing you need to bring, nothing you need to do. Draw near to him. Come boldly as his child. And why do we so often not? Well, usually because we have built a barrier ourselves with our own sin. So the second gospel application is come boldly even in repentance. God has mercy. There is mercy waiting for you. And, and this is a privilege you have as God's child. This is, this is trusting in God for his mercy. He is not giving it begrudgingly. He delights to pour out his mercy and grace upon you. So you don't walk in guilt. Have you ever, uh, um, well, I think, of a, I think of a time when I was uh, little, I could worry a lot, and I probably still do too much, but I, I was a child, I worried, and I thought something was, was wrong with my, uh, with my body. I thought I had like some sickness, or there was something going on, I can't remember what it was, something going on that made me like really afraid. And so I finally mustered up the courage to talk to my mom. I said, what, you know, what is this? And I just clearly remember her basically telling me, oh, that's normal. And complete and utter change, <laughs> right? Hearing, hearing my mom say that to me and my walk turned into a run, right? Believe who God says you are. He says that you're his son. He says that you're his daughter. Come to him even in repentance, knowing that that's who you are. And he wants nothing more than to pour out his mercy and grace upon you. You say, well, I'm weak. He says, perfect. Because my power is made perfect in weakness. So I can't, it's hard. What do I do? He says, perfect. Because I'm going to work through you. Just come to me. The third gospel application is be who you are then as a child of God. This, this means no longer taking up old sins, but living in light of your relationship with God. He says, you are holy, be holy. He says, you are pure, strive to be pure. He says, you're an ambassador of the kingdom. Seek to be an ambassador of the kingdom in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your home. He says, you have the Holy Spirit. Lift up the cup and ask for more. He says, you're his child. Be his child. The fourth gospel application. Recognize then that you are just one of many children. You have brothers and sisters, older and younger. We all have them. If you're an older brother or sister, look to help the younger brothers and sisters in the faith on their way. If you're a younger brother and sister, look to the older brothers or sisters and ask for their help in the faith. We're always looking out for our brothers and sisters. Christ was the firstborn among many brothers to make sons and daughters of God. God sent his own son to bless children. So recall the story from the beginning of the sermon. The child ran unabashedly up to his father who sweeps him in his arms 
sweeps him up into his arms. And I might, again, that might not be your earthly story, but in Christ, it is your heavenly story. So as a child of the kingdom, you are a child of God. Come boldly into his presence. And what awaits you? Nothing but the wide open arms of the Father who longs to wrap you up in his warm embrace and bless you through our King Jesus. Let's pray.